Hello there, world. It's time once again for UConn 360. And what's that, you ask? It's the only podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. And this is our 37th episode. Woo-hoo. Big 3-7. Finally, it's here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we thought it was last time. But and we, the time, and before, the time that. before that. We're not Basically. good at math. We were very anxious for 37 for some reason. <laughs> uh, I'm Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. We're coming to you from the Lakeside Building in beautiful Stores, Connecticut. And joining me are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Good morning. And Ken Best. Hello there. We have a very exciting show for you on this fine summer day, wherever you are. It's probably summer, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, actually. Hmm. We do have listeners in Indonesia. Cool. And it's not summer for you. But I hope it's a fine day in Indonesia. And why don't we jump right into it with some news? we got a lot of big news. We do have big news. Julie? This is not really big news. Probably not very surprising news either, but... A Yukon study has shown that toggling between viewing entertainment and using social media lessens a person's ability to just escape reality and enjoy a show. That's bad news for more than half of television viewers aged 18 to 24, who previous research has shown use the second screen for engaging on social media to discuss what they're watching on TV. Uh, Sarah Swathi Bellor, UConn assistant professor in communication, said, Despite its popularity, live tweeting has potential pitfalls on audience experience. She collaborated on the study with Suji Park, UConn PhD, and Zhao Wenju and Brenda Rourke, doctoral candidates. The study, published in the Journal of Broadcasting and Electronic Media, found the most significant impact of the two-screen experience was on the viewer's ability to transport into the narrative and become immersed in the televised story, which might be bad news for the TV show promoters who often initiate social media conversations among viewers I don't doubt their findings but um, from my perspective the television shows I watch are only bearable if I'm on Twitter <laughs> complaining about them maybe you should find better shows mm. I like to live tweet uh, award shows yeah I yeah. used to do that a lot but yeah no I, I mean being on your phone while you're watching TV it is hard it is the Kit Kat Club is now on campus what did you know that no I did Cabaret is being performed by the Nutmeg Summer Theater edition of the Connecticut Repertory Theater. And I, I believe this is one of the first times we've had so many equity actors in a production. Laura Michelle Kelly plays Sally Bowles, the starring role. And she grew up on a dairy farm. So she told me when I spoke with her for my UConn Today story that she's been visiting the cows she's because right it helps her to uh, relax and get ready for her performance. She originated the role of Mary Poppins in the West End of London and then reprised the role on Broadway where, when Captain Hook was introduced for the replacement of the original star, guess who that was? My, my good friend Terrence Mann. Your good friend Terrence Mann. Who I still haven't met yet. <clears throat> we'll arrange that. Thank you. Terrence is not directing. He's uh, the artistic director. He directed the Mamma Mia performance that just concluded, but Cabaret runs through July 21st at the Harriet S. Jorgensen Theater. Forrest McClendon, a UConn alum who was a Tony nominee on Broadway for uh, the Scottsboro Boys, is the MC. He's got the biggest role, and he, I saw him a little bit during rehearsal, and he's got costume changes, and he's running around, and he's really holding up the starring role very well. The American Sign Language Interpreted performance is July 13th. So if you want more information, go to crt.ucon.edu and you can read my story at today.ucon.edu. You uh, don't have any big news. I don't have any way. I do have some big news. What? Also some East news. Also some old news. Yeah, it's not new. Hopefully it's not news to anyone listening to this, even if you're in Indonesia. UConn will be starting in the 2020 sports season 
we'll be rejoining the Big East. Yes, we're very excited. We're, we're coming home. This was a decision made uh, late last month, or finalized, I should say, late last month. So this will be most of our men's and women's sports programs will be joining the Big East. Um, our football program will probably be independent. That is yet to be finally determined, as, at least as of this recording. And, of course, the, the hockey teams will still be in Hockey East. We've already seen, we, the university has already seen um, a big increase in season ticket purchases. Mm-hmm. People seem very excited about returning to the Big East. I really liked the uh, wave of $19.79 donations yes. to the foundation. That's because that's the year the Big, Big East, East started. Founded. We were one of the founding seven members. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe we'll hear a little bit about that in Tom's History Corner. Oh. But anyway, so that's the big news. Um, you've probably heard it analyzed to death. From my perspective, it's good. Uh, it's, you know, rivalries that people remember fondly mm-hmm. and a uh, chance to travel more, you know, when the Huskies are playing Providence. Just yeah, drive to Providence. Yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah. Great news on that front. Great news on lots of fronts. Yeah. For example, Julie, you've got a story for us that's, that's great. <laughs> it's great. It's not news. It's great. Um, so my guest this week hardly needs an introduction. <laughs> I'm going to give you a hint. For today, I propose we change our name to the Yukon 360 podcast. All right, fine. But really, we had the most special guest in the studio the other day, our beloved mascot, the best in the country, the very goodest boy, Jonathan the 14th, stopped by with one of his handlers to answer your burning questions. We're so excited to have Jonathan the 14th here in the studio with one of his handlers, MC Meadows. MC is co-chair of Alpha Phi Omega's Husky Committee. We got a ton of questions for both you as the handler and Jonathan on social media. And MC's going to be doing some translating for us. <laughs> and yep. some of these questions are for her. First of all, tell me a little bit about APO and what you guys do as Jonathan's handlers. Yeah, so APO stands for Alpha Phi Omega, and we are a service fraternity on campus. We basically focus on the principles of leadership, friendship, and service. And we took over the care of Jonathan in the 1970s when the student government was like, yay, we're going to sell him uh, because he (laughs) represented the man. Not sure what that means. (laughs) We have talked about that actually on our podcast before. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So we basically took him over and we've been caring for every Jonathan ever since. Awesome. And our current Jonathan, Jonathan the 14th, tell us a little bit about his origin story. Where was he born? He was born on October 5th, 2013, and he was born in El Dorado, Arkansas to Husky Harbor. And his mom's name is Aurora and she is all white. And his dad's name is Rusty and he's copper colored, so sort of brown and white. Oh, that's really interesting. With his coloring. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. He has such a beautiful coat. And we had a, I think this is an Instagram user, Sue Pansiera, wanted to know, does Jonathan like to be brushed? And how often does it happen? Your fur is so beautiful. Oh, yes. He loves to be brushed. Uh, Mostly just because during the process, he gets a ton of treats. (laughs) But he definitely needs a thorough brushing about once a week. And we blow his coat a few times a year. His fur is super thick and has a ton of layers. So it helps him keep cool in the summer and then 
warm in the winter. Kathleen Ann wants to know, Jonathan, we have a husky puppy named Maya Moore. Clearly, she's a Yukon fan. Love that. (laughs) I was wondering if your groomer trims the fur on your paw pads. Maya tends to slip a bit on our tile floors, but hates it when we go near her paws. Yes. So John Gagnons gives him a proper grooming, including trimming the hair that grows on his foot pads. And it gives him really good grip on the basketball court, you know. (laughs) A little slippery out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You mentioned John Gagnons, which is one of Jonathan's sponsors. How else is he cared for? How do you guys uh, raise the money to take care of him? And who else helps in his care? Sure. So we do a lot of fundraising all year round. APO raises all funds for his care. And we do calendar sales. You can usually get those just before the end of December. Yes, they're wonderful. I have like three. (laughs) We do pin sales with his face on them. And we do wedding and engagement photos for people. But he also has a few different sponsors. So we often go to Fenton River Veterinary. Hospital, so they provide all the care for both Jonathan the 14th and the 13th, his brother. And John Gagnon's Pet Resort, they do grooming and daycare. He loves playing with all the dogs there. It's so cute. There's another interesting question that came up a bunch of times when we asked for people to tell us what they wanted to know. Mm -hmm. Some people asked, what is Jonathan's real name? All of Jonathan's handlers do have nicknames for the boys. You know, Jonathan the 13th was called Fluffy Butt, Bunny, because when he plays, he hops around. It's really cute. And Jonathan the 14th He's often called Bubba. You know, he's from the South, so it's very fitting. But anyone that tells you that Jonathan has a name other than Jonathan doesn't really know him. They're likely seeking attention or they aren't really a true fan of Yukon. Our handlers spend a significant time with the Jonathan, so their voices are really familiar and always a source of calm and chaotic environments. And we constantly talk to him throughout events, so that helps us stand out in an environment where there are a ton of voices, you know, screaming, Jonathan, Jonathan. (laughs) He's very tuned in on us and listens to our commands. So you're talking about how you guys have to teach Jonathan to do different things when he is in crowds. What do you like about being a handler? Oh, I love everything about being a handler. You know, spending time with the boys is always fun. We get to see them at least once a week to walk them during the day. And it's really nice. It's definitely a sense of calm when we're stressed with exams and stuff. It's always nice to be able to come see the boys and chill out for a little bit. Pretty much the best version of a therapy dog. Absolutely. (laughs) Our beloved mascot. (laughs) What are you and some of the other handlers surprised by when it comes to caring for Jonathan and being out with them. Oh yeah, there's a ton of stuff that people do that we don't really always understand why. People often try to grab him or the leash and we're the only ones who can hold the leash and we do it for his safety so it's always kind of like what are you doing? Um, but people always lean down to greet him also when they're holding food in their hands and he's very enticed by that mm-hmm. food. So you'll either, you know, lose your food or <laughs> we'll just pull him right away. Definitely keep your food to the side or hand it to someone else. <laughs> Good tips. Um, and joggers and runners also concern him. He's like, what are you running from? Do I need to run to? I don't know. Aww. So he's definitely ready. <laughs> <laughs> people wanted to know how long is the training process for Jonathan? Honestly, it's never ending. We're always working with him, especially since he's a husky. They always try to test you. They want to know, are you paying attention? Did you notice that slice of pizza on the ground that I'm about to eat? How many times can I ignore your commands? How many (laughs) times do you want to say it? That's why we sort of follow some rigid guidelines just to make sure that Jonathan lets us lead him and not he leads us. And we have a lot, a lot of patience. So we do have a bunch of questions for Jonathan. Oh, yes. Mark and Mary Capen asks, what's your favorite treat? Uh, 
carrots and cucumbers, black raspberries that he picks himself. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Always a healthy boy. But, you know, when he wants that treat, the dairy bar, they have their pup cups, vanilla ice cream with a dog treat on top. That's Def- great. We think oh, yes. ask what his dairy bar order is. That's a favorite. <laughs> Do you get extra snacks for being the country's best mascot? <laughs> of course. You know, he's the goodest boy. He is the goodest boy. Yes. What are Jonathan's pet peeves? Oh, he hates bees. Oh, Yeah, I mean, me too. Many of us do. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, I don't blame him. Um, He hates high-pitched squealing. Definitely not good for his good hearing. And also repetitive photographs. If I had to sit that long, I probably would be upset too. We'd all get a little fidgety. (laughs) He also truly knows a dog lover versus someone who just wants to take a photo with him, and he reacts definitely accordingly. (laughs) He doesn't like the paparazzi. No. (laughs) How does he handle all the screaming fans at Rentler and Gamble? You did touch on that also. And this is from our Yukon 360 super fan, Stephen Winchell. He also wants to know if Jonathan thinks West is better than Towers. Well, we can't answer that part because we don't want to start a campus no, rivalry Jonathan's here. like Switzerland. He's oh, yeah. neutral. He loves it all. But as for screaming fans, he always assumes that they're just cheering him on. When it was time for Jonathan the 13th to retire, we approached several reputable breeders with a lengthy list of requirements, of course, for our new mascot. Not not caring is always number one, you know. <laughs> he has to be aloof. Yes, very important. Um, and the breeder that we got 14 from has children who played in the band, and they would always play their instruments at home, and he stood out because he didn't really mind it. Oh, so we good. Knew, we knew he was so a dog So he can handle us. that Pride of Connecticut marching band just definitely, fine. Definitely, definitely. His nonchalant attitude, very easy to train, very easy to take to events. So That's great. He's definitely perfect. <laughs> Christine Crawcraft Keen says, so what's really up with you and Officer Tildy? Does Jonathan have a girlfriend? These are some other questions about Officer Tildy. When are you taking Officer Tildy on another date? If it's not on Instagram, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, they definitely have play dates, but they both work a lot. You yeah, know, they're working dogs, so they do like to spend time together. But Officer Tildy loves to retrieve an attitude he definitely does not understand. <laughs> um, but other than that, they get along great. Maybe you can have more time after they both retire from oh, their Oh, we hope that's not jobs. for a long time. We're getting near the end of our rapid fire questions submissions tasmanianly asks what is jonathan's favorite season of the year oh of course winter of course he loves 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 the snow so he legitimately loses his mind (laughs) we've seen the videos oh yes it's a good time (laughs) at 77 kdh asks is jonathan does any therapy dog work So he doesn't officially do any therapy dog work, but he does have his Canine Good Citizen certificate. So you can go online and check that out, what it entails. You'll be very impressed with all of the stuff that he had to complete and as a puppy. He's visited alumni in the hospital and he's been to retirement homes, but his commitments at UConn always keep him pretty busy. Winnie McCaro asks, what's Jonathan's favorite thing to do? Well, he loves walking on campus and watching people. They're fascinating to him, let me tell you. What's his favorite place on campus? Where does he like to hang out and go for a walk? Well, he loves behind the Benton. There's That's that little, my favorite yeah, spot. Yeah, it's really beautiful back there, and it's very cool during the day, so it's very good for summer. But in bad weather, he loves to go to ITE C80, the giant lecture hall. He can run around, do whatever he wants. It's his definition of a good time. <laughs> and he, of course, loves Horse Barn Hill. All the smells, the cows, the grass, the wind, all of it. And finally, what is Jonathan's favorite thing about Yukon? Well, you know, did I mention ice cream earlier? Because it's <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> Seriously, he loves all the students and staff. He loves meeting new people and interacting with them and hearing them cheer him on in the stands at games and events. It's, it's really all about the students and staff here. That's great. Well, we love him, too. And thank you so much for coming to visit us. This is a real treat. This Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thank you, MC. 
love that. That's probably our most special guest. I, like that's like a big guest. That is. He was here in the studio, yes. right where we are sitting. There's photographic proof if you go online, folks. Yeah, those were real sounds him. of him making little growls. You have him on your shirt. I, currently, I do have him on my shirt. Yes. And we've talked about him many times. We always talk about him. I know. She was telling me all this history stuff, and I was like, we talk about that all the time. He's no stranger in this building no. either. No, we love him here. He comes to visit a lot. We're very, very lucky. Thanks to Jonathan and his handlers. Yes, thank you guys. That was great. Ken? Yukon sociologist Arnold Deshevsky is an emeritus professor and serves as the senior academic consultant of the Berman Jewish Data Bank, which he led from 2004 to 2013. Professor Deshevsky has been involved with the Judaic Studies program here at UConn for many, many years. He has been collaborating for several years with his colleague Ira Sheskin of the University of Miami as the co-editors of the American Jewish Yearbook, which is the authoritative record of the North American Jewish communities in the United States since 1899. It's been published for many, many years. The most recent edition was just published by Springer, which is one of the leading academic publishing houses. Professor Dashevsky and Sheskin view their work as being a lasting legacy about Jewish history in, in the United States, and Jews make up 2% of the United States population. I hadn't talked with him for quite some time, so he came down to our studios and we spoke about the global interest and the importance of keeping records of the Jewish population in, in America, and really the challenges of updating the book as Jewish identity continues to evolve in the United States. We know from our experience in running the data bank that the interest in the population of Jews is worldwide. I remember looking at where the inquiries were coming, at, and we found interesting countries in Eastern Europe, from Russia, from the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia. The World Wide Web truly makes what we're doing of worldwide interest. We find that rather gratifying. One of the focuses in this yearbook and uh, from our discussions in the past when you uh, were doing the data bank is the identification of one as a Jewish person and how that has evolved and indeed changed over the years, especially in contemporary life in the United States. Religious identification, intermarriage, and the lowering of birth rates, which is global, affect this. What does that tell you about the need for this, this information and the challenge in trying to compile it? We need the information to get a baseline of where the Jewish community is at. I don't know whether this is exceptional or not for a religious community to keep such accurate figures on its population. I don't want to say it's biblical because there are biblical verses that say you shall count the population, but there, there is a sense that this is important. Now, in regard to the changing composition of the Jewish population, and that may be something inherent in your question, listeners may not know how the definition of who is a Jew varies. After all, that's a question that becomes a legal issue, actually, in some places, for example, in the state of Israel. But the re listeners probably should know that the traditional definition of who is a Jew is defined by Jewish religious law, which says one is Jewish who is born to a Jewish mother— or as a convert to Judaism. Both of those two criteria, the parenting and the conversion, are problematic issues and debatable issues. So in the modern period, two of the more well-known denominations, the Reform and uh, maybe a less-known denomination, the Reconstructionists have argued it's one who's born of a Jewish parent, ignoring the rabbinic uh, dictum that it's of a Jewish mother. 
some point to the fact that the great biblical figure Moses intermarried, and that in those days, in biblical days, tracing of the identity was to the father's uh, side, not the mother's side. I guess the conclusion could be that in some circles, there's an expanding definition of who is Jewish. In terms of social science research, even my colleagues who would identify themselves as Orthodox don't look for the definition of Jewish identity in terms of that rabbinic definition. One is Jewish who was born of a Jewish mother or converted to Judaism. They look at it in terms of what one professes to say. And even if one doesn't accept a religious definition of Jewish and just says, I'm just Jewish, they're accepted in the survey as well. In the yearbook, there are two different population estimates given for the U.S. Jewish population. One compiled by Irish Sheskin and I, who write the article on the U.S. Jewish population, which is based on estimates that include people who have perhaps parenting, one is Jewish and one is not Jewish, uh, but they consider themselves Jewish, so they're included. And that estimate leads to 6.7, 6.8 million. On the other hand, Sergio Della Pergola, who writes at the Hebrew University in Israel, who writes the article on the world Jewish population, doesn't include them, the people that have mixed identities, even though they profess to be Jewish, in order to maintain, and his, his argument is, continuity with other studies in other countries only takes those that don't have a mixed identity. So there are debates within the social science community about who is a Jew, let alone among rabbis as to who is a Jew. You do address the self-measurement, I guess, of how someone considers themselves Jewish by traditional, common ways of participating in Judaism. Do you attend the Passover Seder? Do you fast on Yom Kippur? Do you light Shabbat candles? Do you attend synagogue? Those are the four key things that every Jew is aware of and can say yes or no to. So those are important criteria, and some have a relative degree of stability to them. Lighting Hanukkah candles, attending a Passover Seder. Attending synagogue, that's declined, just like attending church has declined. So one thing to understand about, in general, from a sociological point of view, to understand about the behavior of a minority ethnic or religious group is that they tend to reflect the norms of the larger society. We don't live in a vacuum. Now, it's true, there are some religious sects, like the Amish or the uh, Hasidic Jews, the, those that have generally been called ultra-Orthodox or fervently Orthodox, they try to exclude themselves. But even there, there is a certain amount of exposure to the larger society. Another decline that's taken place is more and more people, both in the larger American population and the Jewish population, when asked, what is your religion, they say nothing or none. And that's pretty much a similar proportion between the Jewish population and the larger population. Roughly about a fifth or so are people who don't accept any religious identification. Yet, interestingly enough, the last national survey, Portrait of American Jews by the Pew Research Center, one of their questions they asked was, are you proud to be Jewish? I think it was 96% of the sample said they were proud to be Jewish. Of those who claim to have no religious affiliation, I think the figure was 86%, maybe a 10-point spread between the overall sample and those who claimed not to have a religious identification, they still said they were proud to be Jewish. Because many people in the American Jewish community don't necessarily think of being Jewish as simply religious, but as ethnic, cultural, familial, traditional. And that's a different way in which people relate to their ethnic or religious heritage. You also address uh, in the yearbook uh, several 
issues that don't seem to ever go away, specifically anti-Semitism. Well, we hadn't had an article on anti-Semitism in the yearbook in quite a number of years. And while it doesn't focus so much on the Jewish community, although you can look at it in terms of what, how the Jews respond to anti-Semitism, it is an issue of paramount importance. And clearly we have seen a rise in anti-Semitic incidents, of course, those most violent attacks that have occurred in the history of American Jewish life, the attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh in October and the attack uh, in, in the springtime of this year, 2019, on the synagogue outside of San Diego. This may be a controversial statement on my part, and it may be refuted by future evidence. But I argued about a year ago when I was asked by a publication about the increase in anti-Semitism, and I suggested that certainly the incidents of anti-Semitism have dramatically increased. But I'm not convinced that the number of individuals who are anti-Semitic in the United States has increased dramatically. And the reason I argue that is, again, the Pew Research Center has done a number, uh, several times now, I think the most recent was just two or three years ago, asked a representative sample of all Americans, toward which religious group do you feel the warmest on a kind of feeling thermometer from zero to 100? Surprisingly, this national sample, the Jews scored the highest. Now, that's much different than 50 years ago when something similar to this a scale by Emery Bogardus, a sociologist in California, found Jews more to be in the middle of all ethnic and religious groups. And here Jews are at the top. And actually in the survey, if you remove the next highest groupings, Catholics and evangelicals, which are much more numerous than Jews, the gap between the Jews and the Catholics and the evangelicals grew higher because the Jews are only 2% of the population. Catholics are about 25% of the population. So that's a kind of countervailing uh, evidence to this rise in anti-Semitism. Now, I'm not minimizing that. Uh, you know, I know people who go into a synagogue now and they say, where should we sit? Because they don't want to become a victim. So there are changes in terms of the psyche of American Jews about their sense of security. But it may be, I'm hopeful, but I can't say for sure, that it, this phenomenon that we experienced is more of a passing phenomenon owing to the way in which various media and political personalities have said things that have uh, led to a rise in racist sentiments and anti-Semitic sentiments and actions. Uh, as you heard, Professor Dushevsky is very passionate about his work. Uh, he's working on the 2019 edition, because this was the 2018 year that he just completed, and he's in discussions to continue doing this for the next few years into the early 2020s. Uh, he served as the inaugural holder of the Doris and Simon Conover Chair of the Judaic Studies at UConn, which I think we're familiar with. And this fall, he's back in the classroom. Uh, he referenced uh, one of the classes he teaches. It's the, on the sociology of anti-Semitism hmm. in the United States. Very interesting stuff. All right. So before we go to Tom's History Corner, I want to, uh, I want to read from a summer edition of the Daily Campus. Uh, this is, you know, it reflects today's news or this, this <laughs> summer's news. <clears throat> Quote, yes, UConn is joining a new conference. Yes, it could do tremendous things for the basketball program. Yes, it could potentially bring in an awesome amount of money to the basketball program. I bet this isn't from now. No, it's not. <gasps> it's from the summer of 1979, Ooh. which was the summer that UConn joined the fledgling Big East. Aw, little baby Big East. Which at that time was not actually called the Big East. It was called the Super Conference. <laughs> That's so silly. So, it's terrible. <laughs> Who came up with that? Nobody in this building. No, it was sports writers. Super conference. Um, <laughs> the original seven members of the super conference were UConn, Syracuse, Boston College, Georgetown, Seton Hall, St. John's, and Providence College. Mm -hmm. uh, Rutgers and Holy Cross actually turned down invitations really? to join. Yeah. So the, the 
the motivation, the whole reason the Big East came about is because the NCAA was threatening to remove automatic tournament bids for the winners of small Northeastern conferences like the ones that Syracuse, St. John's, Seton Hall, and UConn played in. What were we in before? At the time, we were in the Yankee Conference. Okay. And we had been part of that since 1946. So that was us and UMass and URI, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, and Boston University, which was kind of the odd right. member out. Yeah, big public. I said URI. I said URI. <laughs> Um, don't listen, that. turn on your listening ears. Uh, and so we were kind of the odd person out of the original super conference, or yes. Big East. We were the only public. Public, non-Catholic. Well, Syracuse isn't Catholic. That's true. But everyone else was Catholic. But this was sort of uh, also at the time, it's interesting reading news coverage, that Northeastern basketball was sort of looked down on. Hmm. The the basketball centers of gravity we were... we were not a powerhouse Because we weren't a super conference yet. Yes. The centers of gravity were in uh, the Mid-Atlantic and in Southern California. At the really? Time. Yeah, UCLA. UCLA makes sense. I would have thought like Midwest Hoosiers or something. Yeah, right? Weirdos. Um, <laughs> we invented basketball up here, though. We so. did. Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. My memory of the early Big East had been UConn getting beaten really soundly all the time. But actually, the first two seasons, we were quite successful. They were both 20-win seasons. Wow. Even though at the time, head coach Dom Perno was realistic about the team's chances, saying fans, quote, have to be aware of what we're up against. I don't see us having 25 wins again. But the really interesting thing from the perspective of today's going back is how little news coverage there was of this. Hmm. The Hartford Current ran two stories on the day of the announcement. One was just a straightforward story about the news conference, mm-hmm. and the other was a non-bylined four-inch story just with Dom Perno's thoughts. Wow. That was it. That was it. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't okay. seem like a big deal. We weren't the basketball capital of the world yet. No. And uh, people were used to going to the field house and, you know, seeing Maine. They didn't know what was to come. Oh. So hopefully, I mean, there's obviously a lot more hype around this one. A little bit. But uh, us and some of the originals, we're getting the band back together. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is. Speaking of fun, it's always fun sharing this time with you in Indonesia or wherever you may be. <laughs> if you like what you hear, you can... Follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. Julie, is there anything you want to plug? or No, just subscribe to us because this is fun, guys. It is. And and rate us and review because that actually helps people find us. Mm. Uh, I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Ken, what's your Twitter handle? There is none. Hmm. I'm anonymous is on it, Is it NSFW? Is that why you're not saying it? <laughs> just, just posting all kinds of angry rants? No, no. I leave that to others to do. Fair. Isn't there a fake... Twitter account of you? There's a fake Canvas Twitter account. There might have been at one time. I think I don't some of know our former it's... coworkers, your picture's out there. Yes, well, no, but you can find me on UConn today as we start cranking out more stories. Interesting stuff. We'll get at that. But otherwise, on the radio dial, that, that old-fashioned thing, not a gleaming new 21st century podcast like you're listening to right now, 8.30 to 10.30, Friday mornings at 91.7 WHUS in stores. UConn Sound Alternative streaming online at whus.org. All right. And with that, um, thanks for tuning in to the Super Conferences Super Podcast. (laughs) I'm going to push that hard as our new slogan. Do it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you in uh, two weeks. Watch the Twitter boards.